and welcome to another episode of Politics and Pints. I am your co-host, Mike Jackman. And I am your other host, the older twin by two minutes, Eric Jackman. And we have a great show for you today. We are very excited. Um, we are joined by uh, re- researcher extraordinaire, author, um, the incomparable Lisa Peace. How are you today, Lisa? Thank you so much. I am good. I am one of the few people probably enjoying the lockdown. I'm, I'm getting my place cleaned after 10 years of uh, <laughs> not Yeah. <laughs> yeah, same here. Where Yeah, Eric was just cleaning the bathroom, actually. So he, yeah. all things considered, he looks pretty good. <laughs> So, uh, so Lisa is the author of this fantastic book on the RFK assassination called A Lie Too Big to Fail. Um, it took me a little while to read it because there's so much information in it. But, um, you know, as Oliver Stone says, it's a, uh, a massively researched and skillfully written exploration of a terrible miscarriage of justice. Um, this is the... This is the gold standard of RFK research here, folks. And uh, Lisa, thank you so much for dedicating 25 years of your life to looking into this case and researching it and, and uh, creating this, uh, this book that I hope um, more people check out. So what, what, um, what got you into the, the RFK uh, case? Well, I, my first, inter- first of all, right before the internet went public, because I am that old, <laughs> before the internet, uh, I had picked up like three books at a garage sale. Two of them were on the JFK assassination, and one of them was the Bill Turner book on the JFK assassination. And it all made sense to me, but it was all so completely disconnected from the story. I wonder if it's true. And then the internet went public, you know, a few months later, and my first search ever was JFK assassination. John Kennedy. I landed in a, a hotbed of discussion, alt conspiracy JFK, where people, you know, from all directions were arguing the case. And I jumped in, you know, not knowing much about any of the cases. You know, I'd read three books. I thought I was an expert. Ha ha. But it really, uh, being attacked there inspired me to back up my facts better. And I found myself going to the library. And I don't know if you can see in my, uh, on the shelf there, do you see that, like, dark shelf where everything looks like it's the same kind of book? Oh, that, yeah. Those are the Warren Commission volumes. Oh, Warren wow. Testimony and exhibits and, you know, all the different files that they collected and published, 27 volumes. <coughs> I originally found a set at a local library, but then I wanted to own my own, and some little store in Burbank had one and notified somebody who told me, hey, Lisa, you want one? So I plugged down $1,200 <laughs> to wow. buy that, and that was a lot of money for me then. That'd be a lot of money for me now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, anyway, But one day I was at the library going through microfilm, and I pulled out the drawer expecting to see the JFK microfilm, but I pulled out the wrong drawer. And there were the LAPD's files on microfilm of the RFK assassination. And at that point, it was like 1993, and the files had been released in 88. And I knew enough to know they were only about five years old. Only one book had been published since the files had been released. And it was Dan Moldea's book. And I knew enough to know that Dan Moldea was not credible (laughs) for a lot of reasons. Um, Meaning he's kind of a government apologist, if you will. And... um, Anyway, so I started looking at the microfilm, and right away the stories that leapt out at me were things I'd never heard in anybody's book. This guy, Michael Wayne, was arrested that night, you know, and handcuffed and taken to LAPD in question. He was ultimately let go. But there's a very, very interesting story about him, and, and so many stories like that. And all these witnesses to a girl in a white dress with dark polka dots in the company of Sirhan and also a guy in a gold sweater with the girl and Sirhan all night. So it was like a trio and people saw all three of them together. Some of them just saw two of them together, the girl and Sirhan, the girl and the guy in the gold sweater, the gold sweater guy in Sirhan and so on. And by piecing all these together, I could kind of follow Sirhan's path through the hotel that night, other people's path through the hotel that night, Wayne's path. And as I, the more I researched, the clearer the picture got. But I never intended to write a book. I was just really passionately curious about it. 
And after a while, it just became clear. I think it was when Shane's book came out. Shane O'Sullivan wrote a book back in 2000, I don't know, six or eight or something. And I was so disappointed that it didn't go very far. It kind of summarized what we knew to date. It had a couple little bits, but it didn't talk about any of the stuff that I had been learning. I thought, damn it, I'm going to have to write my own book. <laughs> Who else is going to tell this story? And yeah. so I came to it. And it was very reluctantly kicking and screaming. You know, I really did not want to write a book. And, but I was also smart enough to know if I was going to write it, I better write it first and then go to a publisher. Because if you go to the publisher first, they have more say on what's in the book, you know, for one, and they can shape it. And I didn't want that. It's like, I want to tell the story I know that I understand. And I knew Adam Parfrey at Arrow House would probably take it. Because he and I had discussed that over the years. If I ever write a book, he's like, Lisa, let me know. And, and come, you know, as we were coming up on the 50th anniversary, he got back in touch. And I said, you know what, I, I really am getting close to finishing. But I don't want to talk to you yet because I don't want to be on deadline. I want to finish it the right way. And, uh, you know, obeyed my, my wishes, and then I missed the 50th anniversary. And I was, I was done six months before the 50th anniversary, but I had no idea how long it time to get a book published. And, you know, to the printer and stuff like that. So I was very frustrated because I'd worked so hard to finish it before or in time for the 50th anniversary. And I had missed the printing window by a few months. So, and I'm like, Adam, why didn't you tell me? He's like, you told me not to bug you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one of the first uh, times I was really exposed to you and your work, um, I saw an interview you did on RT America with Lee Camp, which was fantastic. I think that was a year or two ago. Yeah, Lee. Yeah, Lee's great. We we saw we saw him do a show um, a couple years ago in Boston and hung out with him afterwards. And he's yeah. a sh sharp dude, funny too, funny. Really funny. Smart and good looking. It's a great combination. He's got great hair. He's got great hair. <laughs> and uh, we, we also, I also saw a speech that you gave. I think it was on C-SPAN 3 or C-SPAN 4? Yeah, on the regular C-SPAN. Oh, it was a regular? Okay, sorry. The reg <laughs> yeah. Oh, I actually drove three and a half hours from the nearest airport to come film me at a conference. Wow. For anybody who's been to a JFK conference, it's almost impossible to get any media coverage. And yeah. That happened was because there had been a Washington Post article. And the only reason that happened is that people had been working as journalists for years. And he started reporting on um, an earlier conference on the RFK case. And when I read his writing and I saw it was pretty fact-based, which is rare in the mainstream media. <laughs> yeah. Well, I immediately went to and said, by the way, I'm writing a book, you know, you can follow me on Twitter, I'll put out some teasers, and, you know, when it came to, like, uh, I was going to be published, the book was coming out in December, and I think it came to November, he's like, Lisa, I can't wait any longer, I want to read your book, <laughs> so, you know, like the pre-publication copy, and, and then it took him a while to get it out, but he had no pushback at all. He's like, Lisa, this is not the Washington Post that it used to be when Ben Bradley was editor. He's like, they're, they're letting us tell the truth about things that we would have been censored on before. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, that so, then led to the C-SPAN thing, which led to you, and thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah so Lisa, what, um, to people who haven't followed this case too closely or might not know much about it beyond that he was killed in a pantry um, in 68 at the ambassador. What are some of the most glaring things that stand out to you that are wrong with the official story and that point to a bigger plot and more people than Sirhan being involved in the assassination? I need two action figures that are small that I can hold up because this is Robert Kennedy and this is Sirhan and their Sirhan's gun is, you know, held here. They were three feet apart. And there were a lot of witnesses who saw guns closer to, to Robert Kennedy. So it was a long time before I could say with confidence that Sirhan's gun would not have killed him. And what I did is I looked at all the witnesses who saw both Sirhan and Robert Kennedy at the same time. Because they were the only ones qualified to judge the distance between them. And they were unanimous that it was three to six feet apart which makes sense that when they asked about the gun muzzle, almost everybody put it two to three feet away. And Robert Kennedy over here, he was shot from like behind his <laughs> right ear at, at not more than an inch and a half, according to the coroner Thomas McGeechee. 
So how does a gun suddenly wrap around and get there? Even if Sirhan lunged, Kennedy was facing him. And we know Kennedy was facing him despite, again, what Mulvey and others say. Because some people say, oh, he turned his head at the last minute. That's not true because Kennedy threw his hands up in front of his face. But Kennedy himself perceived the threat as coming from the front. He saw Sirhan with a gun firing at him. So obviously, if Sirhan didn't kill him, who else might have? So that's kind of the first step into the conspiracy. The second thing is, like I said, here's this guy, Michael Wayne. He was, uh, he was apprehended because people thought he was running a gun out of the pantry. Well, that would make sense if there were two or three or four or five shooters or however many there were. Somebody who may not have even been the shooter would have had to get the gun out of the hotel you know, before the police arrived. And... There were various stories of people seeing a blonde guy and a dark-haired guy separate, one tall, one shorter, running guns out of the hotel immediately after the shooting. And people saw this and didn't think anything of it because they didn't yet know there had been a shooting. So they didn't try to stop them because they're like, oh, that's weird, this guy's running with a gun. You know, it's like no one had knew that yet that there had been a shooting. And, so there's just all these discrepancies, and then it gets a lot worse, because the closer you get into the evidence, when I started looking at the LAPD's files, um, Lynn Nanga was a researcher who lived in Reno, Nevada. She's since passed away. She used to be a neighbor of the Sirhans, and she was just curious, and it's funny because she's very Jewish, and Sirhan was Palestinian, and her other Jewish friends are like, why are you helping this Palestinian? And it's like, well, I just want to know what the truth is. So kind of like me, she was just intensely curious. And she was friends with Bill Harper, who was a criminalist in Pasadena, very highly respected. Bill Harper used to be OSS. He had ties into the LAPD with other OSS guys. And he'd kind of heard through the grapevine, according to Lynn, that you know they basically fudged the evidence. They, he, he said they switched the gun, they switched the bullets. And he didn't tell her any more than that. And so she went looking at the bullets and the guns and tried to figure out if she could prove that with paper, with a paper trail. And when it came to the bullets, uh, two bullets were really easily proved to have been forged. The, there was a bullet that lodged in Kennedy's neck. That was not the one behind the ear. And when I say neck, it's, it's further down. He'd been shot three times under the arm. One just passed through cloth and uh, one passed through his chest and exited and then one kind of went across his back and lodged at the base of the neck. That bullet was pretty intact, and when they took it out, Thomas Noguchi inscribed on the bottom TN31. As he always did, he put the last two digits of the autopsy case number on the bullet and turned it over to the LAPD. Well, when that bullet, mostly that bullet, was examined in 1975 by panel ballistic experts, it had a completely different marking on it. These are like these bullets are about the size of a pencil. These were 22 bullets. So imagine on a, an eraser, if you had TM31, it would pretty much fill the whole space. But uh, after Dwayne Wolfer, the LAPD's criminalist, had examined it and photographed it, a different bullet enters the record and it's labeled DWTN on the base. So it can't be DWTN31 because there's not that much space on the base of the bullet. So we know that bullet was switched. We know another bullet was switched similarly. It had an X on it you know, from the doctor who recovered it at the hospital. It showed the base because it was exhibit six. But uh, why would you be forging bullets if Sirhan did it? And this became my personal curiosity what did Sirhan actually fire? Did he fire any of the bullets that hit Robert Kennedy? No, he wasn't close enough. And then my next question is, did he fire any of the bullets that hit any of the other victims? And the answer there was also, no, he didn't. Not one of the bullets of any of the victims, because five other people had bullets retrieved from them, none of those bullets could be matched to Sirhan's gun. They could be matched to each other, which would make sense if somebody had dummied up the bullets, they would use a new gun and fire them to make them all match. But none of them match Sirhan's gun. And that's a huge red flag. And there's a lot of other evidence, which I go into in my book, and I don't really have time today, uh, 
but Sirhan was firing blanks and in a hypnotic state. And I just want to say something quick about hypnosis. I've seen some hypnosis demonstrations, and the freakiest one I saw was one where a woman was hypnotized on stage. I believe she had seen, you know, she was being handed a $35,000 check. It was like $100 monopoly money, basically. But the guy told her it was a check, and she believed it, so much so that even after the show was over and the hypnotist had left the area, she was still wandering around distressed. And I'd talked to her before the show, so I kind of knew her a little bit. And I went up to her, you know, and then I saw she was like still hypnotized. She still thought that was a $25,000 check. And that's when it kind of hit me. It's like, her hand wasn't even firing at Robert Kennedy. He was firing at something else. He was in an illusion. It had nothing to do with the pantry. That's why he has no memory. He had no malice. He actually admired Robert Kennedy. He thought he was an angel. He did get upset when he heard he was sending back to Israel. But it's an incredible story. And you know, here's the thing. Sirhan is this guy who his whole family had been caught in the Israeli War for Independence, 1948. Uh, they had been living a middle-class suburban life. And then there's this whole war, and their country is uprooted. They end up being shoved into a little tiny house you know, with like a bunch of rooms shared by like four families and a pit for a toilet and just her, and then people being killed in front of them. In fact, Sirhan's own older brother, Munir, was killed in front of him. And that really traumatized him. People who've been traumatized are easier to hypnotize because they're comfortable disassociating. Because the pain is so great, their mind has already learned how to like step away from things. So it's like, here's a guy, you know, who'd never really done anything wrong in his life. You know, his neighbor said he was a really nice guy. His employer said, yeah, he was always very polite, very helpful. You know, they couldn't figure out how this guy had turned into this assassin. And a lot of people said he's more of a follower, not a leader. So it just didn't make sense to them. And it's, it's an incredible tale, and no one will believe it unless they really look at the evidence. That's why the book is so thick and detailed. Because I really want people to understand what happened. I don't want them to believe me. I want them to look at the files, look at the interviews, look at what people have said over the years, the witnesses, you know, hear in their words what happened and see how it all fits. Yeah, there, there really is a lot of information in your book. And, um, you know, uh, spe you know, keeping on Sirhan for, here for another uh, uh, moment, um, he, he had a head injury when he, when he fell off a horse, right? When he was uh, at, a, at a racetrack because he was into horses. And, yeah. it, it, and a lot of people have kind of said that he was a lot different after that. And, and, and it seems like maybe um, certainly his legal, his legal team now kind of thinks that that may have played into, you know, being able to be hypnotized and being suggestible and, and disappearing for times where he was supposedly at doctor's appointments, but no one's really quite sure about that. Yeah, I, I don't, there's nothing, uh, there's no organic brain damage. He's been examined many times over the years. So whatever the hit in the head was, that by itself didn't do it. But that was the perfect time for him to have been spotted and captured to be a patsy for a long-term plot. And here's the thing. The CIA is always training assassins. They don't know who they're going to kill yet. They're just training bunches of people to have on hand. And it looked like Sirhan got spotted. The place where he went to the hospital is literally right next to a naval surface weapons division. And the Navy at that time was deep into mind control and hypnosis. The Navy and the CIA were running parallel programs. And uh, so it's not at all inconceivable to hear this guy comes in and you know, under medication or whatever, it'd be easy to test for somebody being under hypnosis. In fact, in one of my many hypnosis books on the top shelf behind me, uh, one of the authors was saying one of the places they spotted people is in hospitals because they're already medicated and they can just try a few things and find out right away who's susceptible. Their hand is of the highest susceptibility level. And you will hear every hypnotist will always say, you can never make somebody do something against their will. And later day science is saying that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and they are of that most highly hypnotized. You can do really anything. And the easiest way to do that is not to get something to do them a, something against their will. It's again to give them a different scenario. You don't tell a woman to swim. You tell her you're on this beautiful desert island. You're all alone. It's super hot. You know you're sweating and. 
you know, you want to be more comfortable and your, your suit is starting to chafe, the girl might just disrobe right there on her own. You know, you don't even need to tell her to take her clothes off. You set the situation. So, uh, and right after, so Sir Ham was an exercise boy. Uh, he was really a stable hand, but that day he was acting as an exercise boy and he was working at a horse farm in Corona and they put him, Corona, coronavirus. Oh. <laughs> they put him on a, uh, a horse and, and he had a terrible accident in the fog and he's rushed to the hospital. And that doctor said his injuries were minor. They were mostly surface. There was a little internal bruising, but nothing serious. And again, all the doctors many times over the years since have said no brain damage. But, for this minor injury, Sirhan disappeared for two weeks. His family didn't know where he was. No one knew where he was. To this day, I don't know where he was. And then after those two weeks, he's continued going to, well, he went to a doctor once or twice a month for the next 13 months. And that's in the FBI's records. They literally tracked down all his office visits. And I'm like, for a bruise and a cut above the eye, he went, yeah. that sounds like that's just a front for his programming session. And that's yeah. where other characters in the story come in, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, MK Ultra was still in full swing at this point. I mean, it had been, MK Ultra that we know of had been going since like 52 or 53 or something like that. And um, it's, yeah, but, it's, it's conceivable. Yeah, CIA conducted mind control programs since, I want to say maybe even 51. Uh, very early on, they were under Project Bluebird and Project Artichoke and ultimately Project MKUltra. Artichoke is actually the better analogy, and it had started in 54, I believe, or at least the document I have is from 54, and they had hypothesized, can we get a person of redacted origin commit an act of attempted assassination as part of a larger operation? In other words, we stick a patsy in to pull focus while our real assassins get the job done. Yeah. And I think the answer was yes, because it seems like something similar happened to Lee Harvey Oswald. There were people who argued that, you know, he had been hypnotized when he had been at Atsugi as part of a writing program they were doing there. Atsugi being one of the CIA's top secret bases where MKUltra experiments were being held. And Jack Ruby, you know, there's a guy who argued he had been hypnotized to kill Oswald, which would make sense because... He claimed he did it to protect Jackie, which didn't protect Jackie at all, because the truth couldn't come out if you can't hear what the assassin has to say. Uh, even in the Martin Luther King case, there's some weird evidence that James O'Reilly may have been hypnotized. And there's things he can talk about, and there's things he can't seem to talk about. And he would try over the years, and it was like he would censor himself. And that's like a sign of hypnosis. You get to a blocking point, and you just can't say anymore and you don't know why you can't say anymore you just can't um, yeah hypnosis is such a dangerous thing i wish if people get nothing else out of my book i hope they learn never never do a you know go out with a stage hypnotist yeah be hypnotized unless it's a true medical professional and i would still do it with a video camera and witnesses because in my book i talk about women going to men doctors who hypnotize them and then have sex with them and, and then the women sued because it was not consensual. So obviously you can hypnotize people to do something against their will. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's interesting. You brought up the MLK assassination. Um, there seems to be a parallel with that because um, at least several of MLK's children don't believe that uh, Ray was the assassin. And, and the most outspoken in the Bobby Kennedy case is his son, RFK Jr., um, who in the last couple of years has been quite outspoken. And you've, you've actually, you interviewed him for your book, and it, it seems like you guys have worked together on a few things. Yeah, Robert Kennedy um, Jr. was just finishing his book that he'd been working on for 10 years when he reached out to me and, you know, wanted to talk to me. At first, David Talbot connected us because there was something about the JFK case that Talbot knew was wrong, and he's having trouble explaining it to Bobby why it was wrong. And... And he's like, Lisa, who would be the best person to explain to him? I said, let me. I don't understand that part of the case. And I can explain to him. And I did. And then Bobby backed off. And, you know, because when I have a good argument, I have a good argument. And I bring the facts. And so he was persuaded. And then he and I talked a little bit about his father's death. And he had me over to his house. And 
you know, I had lunch with him, which his wife graciously made, and, um, you know, get another nice chat. But he was working on putting a chapter on the JFK case and a chapter on the RFK case in his family biography book, American Values. And the publisher balked and said it's not really in the tone of the rest of the book. And honestly, it isn't. <laughs> but it's also, it's a huge part of his life and his family's life. And it should have been in that book. But he decided then he might do a separate book just on that. Because he's been doing his own research over the years. He's learned a lot. Obviously, people have talked to him that have maybe not talked to anybody over the years. But because it's him, the son, they will talk to him. Now that wow. every disinformationist in the government is out trying to talk to Bobby too. And you know, everyone's concern is that he'll fall for some of that. Hopefully not. Uh, but yeah, the day Thane Eugene Caesar died, he called me over to his house. He's like, Lisa, bring some books. I need pictures of Thane Eugene Caesar. I'm gonna post something on you know on Instagram. And he did, and he he doesn't have a computer or a typewriter. He does everything by his iPhone. <laughs> And or by hand, and so he needed like word counts. So I was just there with my computer. You know, every time he did it, you know, he'd like email it to me, and then I'd check the word count. And it was kind of fun, but I helped him with that, and I tried to tell him at a couple places, like, in the way, he really didn't kill him. I'm pretty sure he didn't kill him, but I am pretty sure he shot him. But I don't think they made the fatal shot for reasons that, again, I, I encourage people to read my book, Three Shots Under the Arm, and. Wayne Caesar is holding that elbow, standing right there. Those shots he could hide easily. But he's a big, tall guy. He's taller than Robert Kennedy. His arm would have been almost at a downward angle, pointing. It's it's like it would have been impossible to hide that. Whereas in the book, I have a couple of witnesses to a guy in a white busboy uniform who put his hand up to Bobby's head, and people had the distinct impression that he had fired a gun, and yet they couldn't see a gun in his hand. And I talk about the various kinds of weapons that could have been concealed and that that white busboy is the better suspect for the fatal shot. It's the one at the back of the neck wouldn't have killed him. So that, but it's not for lack of trying. I think Payne Caesar was trying to kill him. I think he almost killed him. And he held him in place so somebody else could kill him. I believe all of that from the evidence. Um, but whether he made the fatal shot, that to me is more of a stretch, to be honest. Yeah, so you you want to go into who Thane Caesar was a little bit and some of his connections and, and who he was in, involved in? That night, he was a hired extra guard. The hotel had its own security force, but because it was a big election night and they had several parties all over the hotel, they hired a security, uh, which was a separate outside security firm. And Caesar was one of the security guards. He was moonlighting as a guard, and in fact, it appears he only... <laughs> got hired the week before, like May 28th, and then it's like June 6th. So, you know, hired right at the, you know, maybe May 25th, it's in my book, but hired very close to the date. So it's not like he'd been a guard for years, but his job at the hotel that night was to guard the pantry and to keep people out who didn't have press badges, Kennedy party badges. Well, obviously, he didn't do a very good job because without either of those badges, got it and shot Kennedy. Uh, so, uh, one could say easily that at the very least, he completely failed to protect Kennedy, that that's one of the things he was hired to do, and he didn't. All right, he, during his day job, was working at the Lockheed plant, and this is the, the famous Scopeworks facility and, you know, where people had to have top secret clearance. So he also, um, I was told that he had been working at Bel Air Security, which was owned and founded by Robert Mayhew. Mayhew was the CIA's ultimate fixer. When the CIA wanted to off Castro, they got Mayhew. Mayhew was deeply connected with the mob, and that always made for a good, plausibly deniable scenario. The mob had lots of reasons to want to get rid of Castro. <clears throat> Obviously, the CIA's hand was supposed to stay hidden. It's common knowledge now that the CIA tried to off Castro. But at the time, I mean, that wasn't known for many more years. You know, it was almost 15 years before those plots started to leak out to the public. Well, 67, seven years for one of the first ones. But um, 
Anyway, so if Mayhew and Fain knew each other from Bel Air Security, that's really interesting. Mm. I also had two separate people who told me that Mayhew had planned the assassination, you know, basically hired the team, put people in place, set it up. He wasn't there firing a gun himself. That's not what he does. But that he had planned the, the assassination and put people in place. One of those was a guy who shared an office with Robert Mayhew, and that was John Meyer. When they worked together at the Hughes Corporation, Howard Hughes, the eccentric billionaire. By the way, the CIA completely infiltrated the Hughes organization. Hughes had gone to the CIA and said, let's, let's, you know, I need help. You need my money. This seems like a good partnership. So Hughes was very aware of this. I don't know if he was aware of the extent of it. And in fact, when Mayhew was trying to kill Castro, Hughes had not been informed that that's what Mayhew was doing. And he's like, why are you always going to Florida? Why aren't you here? You know, where are you? What are you doing? And Mayhew got permission to tell Hughes, by the way, we're trying to kill Castro. And he's just like, oh, good. You know, no problem. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know if you would approve of a Robert Kennedy assassination plot or not. I do know it wouldn't have mattered, but maybe he would have done it anyway. If the CIA came to him and asked him, he would totally do it. And if he wanted to do it on his own, there's a lot of evidence that he wouldn't have done it. It's, if you read Mayhew's own autobiography, He's, he's got a lot of interesting stuff in there. It's almost like he wouldn't sneeze if the CIA didn't approve it. And the CIA had that same feeling. He said something in the IG report on the Castro plots about Mayhew. I wish I'd put in my book. It's kind of like, oh, yeah, we got Mayhew in the bag. Yeah, those weren't the words, but it was like, he won't do anything without our permission or approval. Like, he's totally loyal to us. In other words, I feel they probably had something they could blackmail Mayhew with. And so they had him and that he would never do anything they didn't sanction. That's why I am convinced if it was a plot. Also, now here's the interesting thing. Mayhew ties to the mind control programs part of the CIA. That's how he got into the CIA. His friends were the Office of Security people who were running those plots, who were running MKUltra and Sheffield Edwards. Wow. And then he also had the mob connections and, and there was a little mob you know, connection at the place where Sirhan was working. Of course, you know, mob and horse racing have been intertwined from day one. So how do I want to say? We also have to be careful that just because somebody knows somebody doesn't mean they were working together to kill Robert Kennedy. You know, so I've, I've not seen any direct mob involvement in the kit. It just, it looks like CIA every direction I look. And here's the other interesting thing. Who were the first people on the scene? It was not the LAPD, it was actually the sheriff's office. And this is really significant to me because one of Mayhew's best friends in LA was Peter Pitches, who was then the sheriff of Los Angeles County. And what better person, I, I, actually he might have been the assistant sheriff, he became sheriff later, but he was very high up. I don't remember now if he was sheriff then, I think he was, I think he was. And again, it's in my book correctly, once I write it down I forget it. Yeah. But who better to control the crime scene than your best buddy, Sheriff Pitches, who apparently had covered up for a murder that Mayhew had probably organized sooner. There was an actor who was sleeping with a girl that Hughes wanted, and he wanted that actor, like, literally done away with. And suddenly the actor and the girl go out to a gun range, and the actor ends up shooting himself, supposedly accidentally, while cleaning the gun. Don't know what really happened. But I do know that Mayhew had talked to Sheriff Pitches about it to convince Pitches that he wasn't involved, which is interesting in and of itself. And again, there's more about that in the book. But uh, Mayhew's a bad dude. And, and John Meyer shared this office with him. And at night, Mayhew would drink. And he would drink heavily. He would just start talking about stuff. And he, you know, Mayhew didn't tell him I killed Kennedy. But a few days before, uh, John Meyer was supposed to be in the pantry with Bobby. He was going to give him a speech about nuclear disarmament. He was you know, preparing it for him and was planning on flying down Monday and the primary was Tuesday and Monday. Maybe he comes into his office and says, cancel your flight. You're not going to Los Angeles and you're turning the Don Nixon relationship over to me. Because Howard Hughes had asked John Meyer, get close to Don Nixon because Richard Nixon has a big future and, you know, 
had been in for us, basically. And, uh, and so that was interesting. And then the day of the assassination, John Meyer, like, didn't, or it was the day after, because he knew he had been shot, but Robert Kennedy lived for 24 hours. He, he didn't die immediately. And so after, it was like the next day, so that would have been June 6th. He was shot after midnight on the 5th. He died like 1.40 a.m. on June 6th. And that morning, uh, Mayhew and Don Nixon and Meyer had a meeting, and Meyer showed up, and they're laughing and joking and 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 talking about Robert Kennedy in the past tense. And, and Meyer's like, what's going on? And like, oh, John, you're so out of it. He's dead. Ha <laughs> ha, you know, great. You know, break out the champagne. And, and Meyer was just kind of horrified <laughs> because that wasn't his politics. And they were doing that because Meyer was a registered Republican. So they assumed because he was a Republican, he was on their side. But he's like one of these honest Republicans who's like, that just doesn't seem right. And he liked Bobby on a personal level. And honestly, today, you know, he'd probably be a Democrat. He was much more on the liberal end of the Republican Party. And uh, so, interesting. Yeah. The other person who told me Thane Caesar, uh, or that Mayhew was involved, was a researcher I knew known for the JFK case. And his father had been an electrician who had worked at the Rampart Station where a lot of the witnesses um, had been taken right after the assassination. And he knew the detectives there, and they told him it was a Mayhew operation. So that's pretty darn interesting. And, you know, yeah, is he making it up? Maybe. Is he lying? Maybe. But why? Why would he lie about that? Why would he say his father had said that when he hadn't? I talked to him in person. He seemed very credible. I asked him to send me an email because I wanted to make sure I used his words, and I used that in my book. Yeah, and now before Caesar died, he wanted uh, RF. Correct me if I'm wrong. He wanted RFK Jr. to fly to the Philippines, and he, he would agree to an interview for a sum of money or something. Some weird. What, well, what, what was the deal with that? Well, I don't want to say it. That probably came through Dan Muldea, meaning they didn't have any direct contact between Caesar and Bobby. But Muldea kind of became Caesar's handler, if you will, and if he wanted mm -hmm. to do to. Uh, Caesar, you had to go through Dan Moldea. He's not a lawyer, so that was a little odd. And Moldea wanted $50,000 to set up an interview. So, you know, Bobby was curious, but he's like, I'm not going to pay $50,000 to talk to this guy. But Bobby does like to talk to people in person. He's a very good judge of character. You can imagine how many people have been in and out of his life, and, you know, he's learned, you know, who the good ones are pretty quickly. I, to me, you know, after he felt my energy, you know, it's like, she's yeah. and, uh, but, uh, when I was at his house and we were talking about the case, I said, have you, have you ever talked to Sirhan, and would you like to, because I could hook you up with his lawyer, and I bet he would be see him, and he's like, hell yes, wow, I, I put him in touch with Lori Dusick, who works with William Pepper, and she flew out from New York, and they drove down from Los Angeles, and he met with Sirhan, and, you know, he knew enough to know that Sirhan hadn't killed him. He didn't know enough to know what I know, that Sirhan was firing blanks. Um, but he's like, yeah, I don't believe you killed my father. And he told me afterwards, he said, he's a sweet man. You know, he didn't wow. seem like he would have killed anybody. And it was so sad. It's just, this is this, this tragedy. Here's a guy, again, this, he's like 25 years old when this happened. He's now been in jail. 50 years, so twice the amount of time that he had been alive at that point for a crime he now provably didn't commit. And his lawyers over the years have been connected to the CIA um, until, you know, the present era. But several of his past lawyers had direct or indirect ties to the CIA, and his lead attorney during the trial appeared to be being blackmailed by the CIA because he basically committed a very serious crime that could have sent him to jail or got him disbarred. And they held his sentence until after Sirhan's trial was over. And he had <clears throat> hanging over his head. And then as soon as the trial's over, he got the lightest possible sentence. Now, if you're going to give somebody the lightest possible sentence, wouldn't you give it to them right away? Why would you hold it and wait till the end of the trial? It's, to me, clearly it was a blackmail ploy. And then Sirhan got convicted, so he got rewarded. And if Sirhan had gotten freed, he might have gone to jail. Who knows? And... Uh, we all want to believe that we have a working justice system 
that the DA and the police wouldn't conspire to frame an innocent person. But the facts show us otherwise. It's why the Innocent Project has so much work to do. It's easier to frame somebody and tell the public, go back to sleep, we have it under control, than to say, you know what, we don't know who did it. That's a terrible PR story. And so the police don't like to do that. So they find some guy who they know is guilty of something, you know, in a lot of cases, and then they frame him up on something else, maybe much more serious. It's, it's just, you know, I'm hoping that my book shows defense attorneys what kind of techniques the police can do to frame people so that they look deeper into their clients' cases and that people consider that, what if my client was hypnotized? You know, what if he really doesn't remember? What if he really was acting out somebody else's suggestion? Well, these things really happen. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that, that was, uh, was that Grant Cooper you were talking about? Is that that fellow's name? Cooper, yes. And then there was, there's two other figures, too, who were, I, I believe, uh, LAPD, but they were also intelligence-connected, uh, Pena and Hernandez. Yes, both of them had worked with USAID, which is a long-time exposed front of uh, its agency for international development. It's an easy way to get CIA people into other countries, you know, so that and embassies have been used forever. It's an open secret. You know, no, no foreign government is fooled. But uh, in in Pena's case, he'd actually retired, and they had publicly, it was in the papers, he had this big retirement ceremony, a little lodge in the valley, uh, beautiful grounds, I've been there, and, uh, and then he shows back up at the LAPD, like in April, or, and I'm not sure what date he showed up, but he was there before the crime, you know, again, and it's like, why are you bringing him back? And he had some really lame excuse, like, oh, I just didn't like the work or something like that. So, and then Pena, there's a, there's a flow chart that shows the flow of information, who interviews who, and then it goes to this person's desk. And at some point, Pena had sole authority to decide if somebody got re-interviewed or not, or if that line of questioning was shut down. And so when Sandy Serrano, this girl sitting out on the back steps, saw a girl and a guy, she'd seen three people go into the hotel. Two of them came back down with the girl saying, we got, we shot him, we shot him. Um, Sandy said, who did you shoot? And the girl said, we shot Kennedy. And they ran off into the black darkness of the back parking lot, never to be seen or heard from again. And I, by the way, in my book, I talk about, I think the girl was, obviously she wasn't talking to Sandy or her the person she's running with who probably knew by then that there was a guy at the top of the stairs at the door there with a walkie-talkie and i think she was alerting him we shot him we shot him we got him it's over let's go and so these people have always said why would she say that you know why would she expose herself anyway she what had gone on national tv within you know a couple hours of the assassination and told her story very convincingly. And so the LAPD worked overtime to discredit her. The FBI too, they took her back to the hotel, they tried to confuse her, they made her sit in the wrong set of stairs for a photo, and, and she even said at one point, it's like, I think you're trying to confuse me, <laughs> you know, in her interview. And so Pena and Hernandez were, were like best buddies, and Hernandez ran all the lie detector tests for, for Pena. And again, only one guy, obviously not using legitimate techniques, scaring people, intimidating people. In Sandy's case, it was almost like psychological torture. If you love Robert Kennedy, you will not say this. You will not say it was a conspiracy. Think of his family. If you love them, you would not do this. And, and Sandy's like, I know what I saw. And she hung in there really well for like three rounds. And, but he kept like running the same session. That's what they call like an interrogation session. And it's like he's running the same script over and over. And you know, when she realizes she's in this indefinite loop, she finally starts to break. And then he seizes on the brakes and says, see, you're not sure. And then he finally gets her to back off her story a little bit. And then Pena, you know, this other CIA guy in the police force, the lead detective, as the files come to him that talk about a girl the polka dot dress with Saran, he says, you know, Serrano's story phony, no follow-up interview, you know, he just basically one-handedly shut down that side because they've had an APD out for the girl for almost three weeks after the assassination. 
even the LAPD thought she was involved. And then Pena managed to shut that all down with the help of Hernandez. And again, you know, two CI guys in the LAPD shutting down an aspect of conspiracy in a case that involves mind control and, and doubles because there were Sirhan lookalikes in the hotel that night. A lot of people saw people who I knew weren't Sirhan because they weren't dressed with the same. You know, he wasn't wearing a white top and black pants. He was wearing a blue velour shirt and blue jeans. You can't mix those up. That's not close. So, but he looked remarkably like Sirhan. And a lot of people thought he had been, you know, a shooter or a gunman or looked suspicious that night. So, so do, you, do you think there's any um, credibility to the identification possibly of David Morales, Gordon Campbell, and George Joannides being there? Or those totally different guys? What's your take on that? I knew that story was phony from day one because I knew who it came from. It came from the guy, Brad Ayers. And Brad Ayers had been um, at JM Wave at the CIA. And I and Jim Eugenio had met with Brad in, I want to say Arizona. I don't remember why I say that because I don't think we were ever in Arizona. But at some point, we met with him on the road in the South somewhere. And tried to sell us on the story that David Morales was involved in the Martin Luther King case. And he said, you know, James O'Reilly talked about this big Indian guy. Well, that could only be David Morales. There's only one guy who's big in this Indian in the whole world, you know. And I, neither of us bought his story. And we talked to him for like two and a half hours, three hours. And that whole time, he not once mentioned the RFK case. And I thought if he knew Morales was there, he would have said something during that time. So that was a big red flag to me. It's like, oh, there's Brad and is trying to frame David Morales for something. It's like he really just didn't like the guy and wanted him to be guilty for everything. And so that was a huge red flag. And then Joanitas is like, he's running the Florida station. They have Mayview on the West Coast. What do they need Joanitas for? I mean, these guys, they're pretty territorial. They have their areas of operation and their theaters where they know all the assets. You wouldn't bring Joanita. So it's, it didn't make sense on that level operationally. Why would you bring this guy all the way here when you have plenty of guys on the... They had a West Coast um, QJ Wynn office. QJ Wynn, the church committee thought it was just one guy, but it's actually like a whole assassination, spotting, training operation. It's probably linked to the mind control. Um, and they had a whole wing of it here in the LA. So it's again, what do you need Joanitas for? So that story didn't make sense on the face of it. And he only started telling that story after a different reporter had started reporting on Joanitas being involved in the JFK case. And then Brad Ayers is like pairing it together. And he got uh, this guy, a former CNN producer, to believe it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then <clears throat> what I'd like to know is how Shane found out about it. If you ever interview him, that would be an interesting question. You know, how did he find Brad? How did Brad find him? Because that was before his book was out. And, you know, Shane first came to my attention when he published the article, you know, already fully formed with this theory. So he wasn't on anybody's radar as being involved in the RFK case. And then he comes out with this big thing. I wrote an article on my blog the day the story hit. I said, I'm pretty sure this is a black bag, you know, a false story. And I think the point of this story is for this guy to come out and say, look, the CIA did it. Oops, those CIA guys didn't do it. Therefore, no CIA guy did it. Because, again, that's a typical way the propaganda works in this country. Has, hasn't Shane O'Sullivan since said that he doesn't think that those were the guys or he's not sure? Shane was totally cowed by the intelligence community and everybody else. You know, that's not what you saw. And now Shane's like, he's been cowed so far, he, he won't even say the CIA was involved in it, which is pretty far to be cowed. So, yeah, I lost a lot of respect for Shane, unfortunately, through that incident. And, and when I met him, he's like, oh, Lisa, you, you have no idea how mad I was when your article came out questioning me. <laughs> he goes, now I know I was wrong. But, you know, at the time, I was furious. And and I think he tried to take out some of that theory when my book came out and he kind of went on the attack uh, with nothing that could stick. So there you go. <laughs> there are these incandescent wars <laughs> among researchers, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. He thought the truth that in my experience in all these cases, most people are in it for their own personal glory. And that's really sad. 
there's only a handful I will even talk to that I think are totally honest and totally in it for the right reason. And most, most people don't make that cut. Hmm. Now, um, did, you, did you ever get a chance to talk to Emilio Estevez about the case? Um, you were involved in the film Bobby, right? Yeah, I did, yeah. Um, I heard they were doing a film Bobby and that it was gonna be filmed at the Ambassador Hotel. I'm like, oh, I have to tell them. And so I reached out you know, to his agent or whatever. And I said, I have maps of the hotel. I have witness statements. I'm happy to share everything for free in the hopes that you just get it right, you know. And they reached back out and said, well, the story isn't really about the assassination. It's about these fictitious characters at the hotel. But I'd like to meet with you and see what you have. And the woman he had me meet with later became his wife. But at that time, she was his researcher. And I took her my file on the girl in the polka dot dress. And I had stacked them you know, the files in a certain order to create like a growing momentum, if you will, because it, it's an incredible story, just that slice of it. And as she read it, it's like her jaw was hanging lower and lower and by the end of it, she's like, <laughs> she's like, oh my God, I believe that girl was there. Lisa, this is crazy. I didn't know anything about this. So she told Emilio and I said, well, you know, if you're going to talk to Emilio, give him a copy of my book. This was when I had the book, The Assassinations, a collection of essays by me and Jim Eugenio and others involved in the case. And uh, so I, you know, wrote a little note to him. And next thing I know, you know, his research is like, okay, if you want to be an extra, go to this firm, tell them you've already talked to us and, you know, they'll send you out here and then you're in. And so I did, and as soon as I got to the set, Emilio came and he shook my hand. He's like, Lisa, that's a great book. And, you know, thank you so much for helping. And then he like brought me to a camera and he's like, look at this footage, because they had shot uh, Kennedy like being taken away in the ambulance or something like that. And it looked very much like the original footage. And I said, wow, you did a really good job there. And stuff. So, you know, we had a couple little interactions on the set. And then Interestingly, on that set, he took me to a guy. He said, this guy was actually there that night in the pantry. And this ended up being one of my most important witnesses. And I didn't realize it at the time. Because first of all, I wasn't even sure he was there. But later, he was able to show me a photo where he was in it. So it's like he was clearly there. And uh, unfortunately, I had lost that document of who it was. And so in my book, he's unnamed. I've since recovered who he was and his story. And if I ever do an update, you know, I'll, I'll put that in there. But he had seen this guy, you know, in a white busboy uniform shoot Kennedy. And he just assumed the guy in the white busboy uniform was Sirhan. And he was so certain it was Sirhan that he made Emilio put the assassin in a white busboy uniform for the film. Mm -hmm. And I tell Emilio, oh, no, uh, yeah, that's not what Sirhan was wearing. He goes, this guy was there. That's what he saw. And I'm like, okay. And that is what the shooter probably wore. <laughs> it just wasn't Sirhan. Uh, which is, but again, he must have looked enough like Sirhan to convince people they were seeing the same guy. And so that was really interesting. But I didn't, again, I didn't know how important that was until years later when I was listening to audio interviews and this woman, the wife of uh, the CIA guy, and I'm going to forget it. Oh, George in the pantry who captures uh, Sirhan. Anyway, there was a famous journalist, um, uh, the name is in my book, and it was his wife, and she too had seen the guy with the white busboy uniform go right and she's like, I felt like he shot him. He didn't have a gun in his hand. I don't know why I didn't see a gun in his hand. It really puzzled her. She's like, she was certain that that guy had killed him in the head, and yet she couldn't see a gun. And it turns out, for example, the CIA has a gun that's so small that it'll literally fit in the palm of your hand and a ring goes around a finger. When you move the finger, it'll fire. That's one way. Another is a Navy weapon where it's a white glove and the gun is like a plunger action. So it's like if you hit that on something, it'll, it'll dislodge the bullet. And they were using the kind of frangible exploding bullets. So, you know, I don't know. And those are just technologies that we know about. What about the stuff we've never heard about that never showed up in the CIA spy museum? They had um, guns that were cigarette containers, you know, where one cigarette was literally the barrel of the gun. And, you know, no one would see a gun and yet somebody could be killed. So many ways to do it without an obvious gun. But when I heard her story, I thought immediately of this other guy's story. And the other guy had then been 
the police interviewed him and suddenly a press person whisked him away from the police and put him on a plane to Australia, because that's a good like 12 hour flight. So he's out there, he's there for a couple of days and they you know, interviewed him for like five minutes on camera, which she thought was so odd, like why would you fly me there and put me up for a couple of days and then interview me for five minutes on camera? It's like, why didn't you just do a remote shoot? And all the way down, an oil executive sat next to him and queried him about everything that he saw about the case. And by the time you know he'd done, he told everybody his story. By the time he got back, he didn't tell anybody else because he'd already told everything he knew. Police never contacted him again. You know, no one ever reached out to him. So he was done until this film came along, and he reached out to me and said, "Hey, I was there. I had this interesting story. Here's what I saw." And since his story and the other woman's fit so neatly together, because he was behind and she was kind of to the side, but they're both seeing this guy in a white busboy uniform come up on Kennedy from the same direction at the same moment, he looked a lot like Sirhan enough to fool them both. They both thought they were looking at Sirhan at that point. Um, that was interesting to me. So, and that's why I think Payne didn't kill him. I really think this guy in the white busboy uniform did. And I talked to... Um, the other busboy, Juan Romero, shortly before he died. I met him at the 50th anniversary uh, showing of, we did a four-part series on Netflix, and they had a little screening of the last part. And I met him there, and I talked to him. I said, can I call you and interview you? I've got a couple more questions. And, and there was a story he'd kind of denied over the years that uh, it was in the Bill Turner book where two guys had come peaking white busboy uniforms two days before the assassination. Now, again, if you got a guy in assassin in a white busboy uniform, you've got to get that uniform somewhere. So that story also fit. But when I talked to Juan, he's like, oh, that story's not true. I don't know why people wrote that. I never said that. And I said, well, that's odd because, one, I'm looking at an FBI report, and I read it to him. He's like, oh, maybe I did say that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, but it wouldn't have been firsthand. He's like, somebody must have told that to me, and I told that to them. He's like, I didn't personally witness that. But if I said it, somebody must have told that to me. And so in that sense, it's true. And I'm really glad I spoke to him because his last word up to that point had been, that incident never happened. And so fortunately now, you know, I got him to change that. So all of that, again, it all fits. If you go the scenario in my book, every piece of evidence actually fits the puzzle perfectly. And to me, that's how you solve a crime. You don't solve it by skipping some pieces or throwing out some pieces. I, I remember reading Bugliosi one, one time said something like, oh, there'll always be pieces that don't fit. And I'm like, no, then you either didn't understand the piece or you didn't really solve the crime. Because in my experience, when you truly solve something, every piece fits. It all matches. Which isn't to say everybody recollects something, you know, people make mistakes. And, but, and, and witnesses sometimes would get clothing wrong, you know, and you have to be very careful. But when it's wildly different, a white busboy uniform is not a blue zip-up velour shirt and blue These two go together. The busboys had, like, black pants and a white jacket, so... Yeah, it's all, all yeah, the de- the devil's in the details sometimes. Uh, one um long to figure it out for myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to ask you one more thing. We're coming up on I think just over an hour here. So, another another thing too is uh um Fernando Farah's research, uh, the polka dot file and and I th- I do think you touch on this in your in your book, the the lunch and really the day that this this fellow spent with this gal who seemed to be very nervous um, yeah. and, and and seemed to have some inside information on what was going to happen. Well, and it's funny because everybody wants to talk about John Fahey and the girl he was with, right, who seemed to have advanced information. And I was one of those people who thought Fahey had probably been with the girl in the polka dot dress. When I read Forrest's book, it became clear to me it was not the same girl because the girl he was with had a turned down nose, whereas the girl in the pantry had a pug nose, a turned up nose. And that was according to numerous witnesses throughout. So two separate women... In fact, there were three or four women who seemed to have foreknowledge of this. There was yet another person, couldn't have been Faye's girl or the girl in polka dot dress because it didn't look like either of them. And it was during the time Faye was in the car with the girl, so it couldn't have been there, who went to the headquarters and said, there's a plot to kill Kennedy and you've got to take me to Hollywood racetrack because I need to tell some people there and they can shut it down. 
And, you know, again, I read that, you know, my eyes popped. I was like, wow, because that's it. It's that horse racing world, you know, that intelligence mob, the anti-Kennedy nexus coming together. Uh, but but, but what had that was so significant in his book that he didn't even know the importance of it is that he played, he said the, the assassin's name, an informant told him the assassin's name was Jesse. And when Sirhan was apprehended, at one point they walk in and say, because Sirhan didn't have any ID on him, and he wouldn't give them his name because he was still in a trance, as I argue in my book. He wasn't trying to, you know, fake them out or be dishonest. I think he literally didn't know who he was <laughs> was trying to cover because it's like it just was not in his mind at that point. And because uh, that buys people time to get away. Anybody associated with him would be out of the area, you know, by him not being able to remember anything. Um, and they called, they thought Sirhan's name was Jesse Greer, and they thought that was the shooter. And that may well have been the name of a cook who had worked there, who disappeared that night, never to be seen again. I asked, you know, Juan, was there, you know, somebody named Jesse Greer? He's like, no, nope, name means nothing to me. But, you know, again, he's a busboy, it's a huge operation. And every hotel uses contractors and as Flora explained to me when Jim, you know, I, I called Jim to meet this guy in person because I never know who I'm talking to. You know, I always want a second opinion. And Flora uh, was explaining that they sometimes just pay cash to people off the street to come in and do things. And there was another guy who worked in the kitchen who was in that exact situation who claimed he knew somebody who claimed to have been the shooter. And, you know, that whole story is in my book. And again, every piece of this kind of fits together. And what's really interesting is that the Jesse that Flora was tipped off about worked at a hamburger stand at the corner of Westwood and Wilshire over, you know, far from the Ambassador Hotel, probably 30 minutes by car from the Ambassador Hotel. And guess who else had been at that exact spot that night? Michael Wayne. <laughs> Picked up a car with a guy and two women at that corner and drove into the hotel. I can't help it. You know, my argument is that Michael Wayne is the on-site planner runner of the assassination. He's collecting press badges from various people all night. Right. People like all access passes. With that, you can get anywhere in the hotel. And so very important, if you're running the plot, you've got to get your assassin's press badge. <clears throat> and he, he was a sweet talker. He talked people out of everything that night. He even had a two of the PT-105 boat pins from the Kennedy party. Those were kind of like collector's items even then. So the fact that he was able to get two of them shows how good he was at what he did. They're talking people out of things. He even got one right off of Bobby Kennedy and swapped him for another one he had. And, you know, so that he claimed he had Bobby Kennedy's pin. And then he gave it away right before the shooting. And it, it didn't have it on him when he was arrested, which is also very interesting. Uh, because if he was a collector, which was Michael Wayne's explanation for why he had all this political memorabilia, if he was a collector, why did he give some of his best stuff away right before the shooting started? So uh, anyway, uh, so Flora's book had little pieces. It also connected the dots on a story of, again, a Sirhan lookalike the Sunday before. The primary was Tuesday, shot right after midnight on Wednesday. At the Sunday before, there had also been an event at the Ambassador Hotel. And there was a guy, again, in a white busboy uniform that people thought was Sirhan. It was probably not Sirhan. Yeah. And Sirhan was at the hotel that day, but again, wearing his ordinary stuff. Well, so much information, Lisa. And, and like you said, it's all in this book, um, A Lie Too Big to, fa a lie too big to Fail, uh, The Real History of the Assassination of Robert F. Kennedy. Um, essential reading for anyone out there who's really interested in this case and the fact that Sirhan Sirhan is still very much alive. He's 76 this year. And, yes, and he deserves to be at the least paroled. He's got a home to go to. They own their home. His brother is still alive and can take care of him. People say, oh, you know, he's been in jail so long, he probably doesn't want to get out. That is absolute bullshit. He wants to get out. He and his brother talk weekly. It's all they want. It's what they both want is for him to come home and just, you know, lead a quiet last few years of his life, you know, in, in peace. And I'm very much in favor of that. I set up a petition. If you Google Sir, free Sirhan, you will find the petition, and I would ask people to sign it 
it would take millions of voices, only a few thousand have signed it. So please tell your friends, you know, the problem is people need to read the book first to understand why it's so important. Because if we free Sirhan, we're really resetting our government, our history, our media. We're saying the history to this point has been false, but from here forward, it will be true. And honestly, in my mind, until the media can tell the truth about the past, they have no credibility in the present. And they, nor should they. And I am not a Trumper. I am not a MAGA person. I am not one of these, you know, I will say fake news because there is fake news. It was fake news that led us to the war in Iraq. No one denies that now. There were no weapons of mass destruction there. That was all one big lie to get us to go see some oil fields. And that's very clear now in retrospect. The reason I wrote this book is not just to free Sir Hannah to tell the truth about the assassination. It, it has a bigger motive, and that's to get people to understand that our media and the government work hand in hand. And until we separate that, we do not have a democracy. We have a covert dictatorship. You know, we are all mind-control victims. I tried to make that point in my Mind Games chapter. Their hand's not the only victim in this case. We all fell prey to a lot of the lies that were told about this case. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good gut check for every citizen. It's like you have to have a better criteria for believing something than it was reported in the mainstream media. That by itself means nothing, unfortunately. And in a democracy, that should be enough. And that's why our country is so in trouble. And that's why I'm trying to rescue it. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you for your time. And, and uh, where, can, where can people follow up and check out what you're working on and, and uh, your work? Uh, follow me on Twitter. That'll be the fastest way. If I've got something new to share, you'll, you'll hear about it there first. It's just uh, at Lisa Pease, L-I-S-A-P-E-A-S-E. And uh, if you Google that name, you can find my book on Amazon or, or a lie too big to fail. Uh, thank you so much, both of you. I really, really appreciate the interview. Yeah, it's Absolutely. Great, great to talk to you, Lisa. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right, folks, that'll do it for another episode of Politics and Pints. Have a great day.